Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. It's that time of year again. Summer is winding down. The hot days still linger, but there is a different feeling in the air. We're coming back from vacations. We're revisiting routines. We're heading back to work. So today, we're looking at what it means to earn a living as the climate changes. We'll hear from a woman who made a bold career change, giving up a secure, tenured position to make a difference. And farmers are grappling with environmental extremes in order to put food on our tables. Now there's a push to help those men and women tending to crops and cattle. Help that's tailored to deal with the particular kind of anxiety that comes with making a living from the land. But first... As cooler temperatures approach, we're talking to people on fixed and low incomes who struggle to stay warm in the colder months. It's a side of the climate conversation that often gets forgotten. Home retrofits can help, but government needs to do more to find and fund solutions. Welcome to an encore edition of What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. Canadian families are struggling. The high cost of gas and groceries and Putin's illegal war in Ukraine is going to make that even harder uh, in the coming months. Of course, that is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Add to that, over the past few months, inflation hit new highs. It's no wonder measures to make life more affordable were front and centre in the federal government's 2022 budget. But look at it through a climate lens and the math just doesn't quite add up. Investing in an EV, home retrofits, or even solar panels is just that, an investment requiring upfront funds to reap the rewards later. But not every Canadian has that kind of cash. And many are struggling to even cover the basics. What on Earth producer Kristen Nelson discovered there is an answer, a way to help those with less cut emissions and save money. Well, gasoline is up, hydro... I don't know, you noticed before you used to do $100 groceries, you had more bags, isn't it? Now it's like ridiculous. Alejandra Ruiz Vargas is chair of the East York Toronto chapter of the anti-poverty group ACORN. We are low-income and moderate-income people fighting for social change. She rents an apartment with her family in Toronto's East End. Heat isn't included in the rent, and this past winter she found herself turning down the thermostat. Yes, I was a, a well, yes, it's, it's a shame, it's shameful to say, isn't it? But I, I try to only that my mother to have good heat, my daughter and me, I try to dress warm in my room, isn't it? But I don't put the heat as much because I only put it a little bit until when I come in from work, it's freezing. My room is like, I already spoke with the superintendent, but he said, all is fine. And I said, what do you mean it's fine? I've been living here for so many years, and I never saw water coming from the windows. And he said, all is fine. 
And, and this is not only my case because I don't want to do this as, as a, my personal case. It's the case of many tenants that live in multi-residential buildings. Everybody is experiencing climate change initiatives, but the bottom rung are experiencing them differently. Sue Gwynn lives in Calgary and works in the charity sector. People can't afford to buy food. And they're making choices that no family, no human should have to make. And it's sort of, do I pay my energy bill? Do I buy food for my family? Do I pay my housing? Or do I put fuel in my car? And all of these things are critical things that they absolutely have to do. But at the end of the day, which one do you choose? Energy costs have soared this year, according to Gwyn. The jumps that we're seeing in Alberta are very dramatic. Three to four hundred dollars a month, some families are reporting. Their energy bills are now becoming like another housing bill, the same amount. That That's insane. Um, we have a family of essentially five, and every month, when I get my email from my utility company, I'm like, okay, everybody brace yourselves. <laughs> like, we need to say a prayer. Hold hands <laughs> before I open this bill and have a heart attack. It's bad. So far, they haven't missed a payment. And though she sees the need for climate change policies, she says people with less money generally aren't the problem. Because honestly, they're the least likely to produce. They're less likely to drive for frivolous reasons. They're not going to leave their vehicles running. They are returning their bottles to the Bottle Depot to get the refund. They are more actively participating in positive climate behaviors. And they just do this. I actually furnished my apartment with 99% of the furniture and everything, not the mattress, but everything else was from the dump. And it cost me nothing. George Lassard moved to Lethbridge, Alberta from Yellowknife two years ago. My budget's very thin since I'm living on a pension, Canada pension plan and the supplement. Heat is included in his rent. And since moving to Lethbridge, he's found ways to save money. A couple of years ago, I decided to get myself an e-bike and have uh, gotten rid of my vehicle. And uh, now here in Lethbridge, which is a wonderful town for biking, do all my shopping, do everything else I need to on the e-bike. Lassard is 70 years old. He has a white scruffy beard and long hair pulled back into a ponytail. I'll also add to the fact that I'm 70 is that I'm also handicapped. I have an amputation from frostbite many years ago of two toes on my left foot. I can't walk more than a couple of hundred meters, maybe. Uh, uh, So I use the uh, handicapped accessible bus here in Lethbridge, which is great. After many years in the Northwest Territories, he's unfazed by Alberta's winter. With the uh, e-bike, I only need to use the handicapped bus here maybe once a month during the winter when the weather is too bad for my studded tires on my e-bike to safely carry me around. Not every 70-year-old pensioner would be comfortable making these changes and ripping around on two wheels all year long. But Lassard's decisions have insulated him from soaring gas prices. And he should be getting more back from Canada's carbon tax to reward his behaviors. But George was surprised to learn about the rebate from me. I don't remember seeing anything to do with carbon tax at all. I know there's some kind of rebate that's supposed to be coming back to people. 
I don't know how the mechanism works. In the coming year, he should receive $539 directly. The federal carbon tax increased on April 1st and rebates have risen too. Households in Alberta, where George Lassard and Sue Gwynn reside, are now eligible for up to $1,079 for a family of four. So that's one way the government is giving money back. But some say there's much more to do. We tend not to think about these things in the depth we need to, and that leads to incredible hardship. Dr. Quam McKenzie is CEO of the Wellesley Institute, a Toronto charity dedicated to research, policy and action to improve health equity. If your preoccupation is just getting by, there are no choices to be made because there is no money to make choices with, uh, then the idea of making smart decisions and being involved in climate change becomes an extra burden and people are less likely to want to do it. So they say, well, that is something for middle-class people or rich people to be thinking about. That is not something for me to be thinking about because I haven't got the bandwidth just to do the things I need to do. And yet, Mackenzie points out that lower-income and marginalized people are the most vulnerable to climate change. They're the people who are living on floodplains. They're the people without air conditioning, whether it's cold or heat, whether it's new diseases, food shortages, or any of the things that could happen with global warming. The people who are most likely to be impacted are the people who have less resource. So I think the more we can be inclusive in climate change policy, the better our policies will be. But there's a long way to go, according to Emily Renault. She's national coordinator of Canada Without Poverty. What they fail to recognize is that people literally live to the dollar every month. Renault thinks the federal budget neglects the needs of lower-income Canadians in the transition away from fossil fuels. This is a very middle-class focused budget, very middle-class focused climate plan. It's definitely not taking into consideration the most marginalized, lowest-income communities that are going to bear the brunt of climate change as it gets hotter and hotter colder and colder, you know, the just the heating and electricity costs. I grew up in social housing in, in Ottawa. I did not have AC until I went to university. And it was like, I was like, oh my God, you can breathe at night? What is this experience? People don't realize that people go their whole lives having no shelter from extreme heat, even if they do have a roof over their head. In order for us to reach our 2050 climate goals and energy goals, the pathway to that has to go through every single household in this country. So for pragmatic reasons, if we do not prioritize low-income households, if we leave households behind the transition to net zero, we will not be successful. Uh, my name is Abhi Kantamnani, and I'm a research associate with Efficiency Canada. Um, energy poverty is very personal for me. I grew up in different circumstances in India where energy poverty shows up in different ways. But I do know here in Canada that uh, more than one in five Canadian households experience what is known as energy poverty. Right. And with rising inflation and rising prices and so on, there are concerns that more households will be pushed into what is known as energy poverty. 
The federal government does run a program that provides homeowners, including low-income homeowners, with free energy audits and up to $5,000 to put toward energy efficiency upgrades. But Abhi Kantemnani says it's not enough. The federal government has yet to play a strong role in centering energy poverty, centering low-income households, and prioritizing them in the transition to a net zero future. And, you know, low-income energy efficiency is not as glamorous as, like, solar panels, right, or or electric vehicles. And, I mean, those are things that are great and they're fantastic, but improving energy efficiency for lowest-income homes and least-efficient homes, to me, goes beyond reaching climate targets, goes beyond helping them save a couple of bucks on their electricity bill. But I think it is to the core of what, for me, it means to be a Canadian. Kantam Naini would like to see the federal government scale up provincial and territorial low-income energy efficiency programs, especially the best ones that offer free or very low-cost solutions that can be easily implemented and start saving money right away. And each province has its own kind of a program, but around 55,000 Uh, Canadian households every year receive some form of uh, energy efficiency improvement and assistance. One of those households belongs to this man. Reginald Joseph Westwood, age 67. Uh, I just retired last year. Um, He grew up in New Waterford, Nova Scotia, and still lives just outside the town. I built this house myself. But when I built it now, I I did the best I could at the time, and I, I insulated it pretty well. I had electric heat here. Plus, I had a fireplace, and I cut my a lot of my own wood just to save some money, you know what I mean? Um, but I can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. He has a few health issues and not as much energy these days to chop, split, and stack all the firewood he'd need to heat his house through a long Cape Breton winter. Turning up the electrical heat just wasn't an option. Money's short now, basically. Uh, I have a small government pension, but it's not very much. Uh, so I have to watch what I'm doing now. I have the budget. I have to keep it tight, that's all. So Westwood reached out to the Clean Foundation. It's an independent environmental charity based in Nova Scotia that runs something called the Home Warming Program, helping people on lower incomes increase their energy efficiency. For him and for the climate, it's become a good solution. Uh, We got a heat pump installed in here. Works great. It works great. What I like about it is uh, I've got a little bit more control now. And and not not only that... (laughs) Cape Breton summers, you can use it for for an air conditioning too, if you want. Not that we need much in air conditioning around here, but so this was a big help. What I'm I'm in the middle of now is basically also getting solar panels put on my roof. So Reg came to us looking specifically for some ways or some plans to help make his expenses more manageable on a year-over-year basis. Matt Best is a residential energy advisor with the Clean Foundation. He worked directly with Reginald Westwood, and he's the guy responsible for getting Reg his heat pump for free. What we're really there to do is get a really clear snapshot of the home in terms of where there might be heat loss or drafts or are there opportunities for a more energy efficient heating system. Essentially, our goal is to help you save money on your yearly utility costs. And that's something I'm really passionate about uh, myself. I've personally experienced energy poverty, and I know what it's like, you know, holding a $100 bill in your hand saying, hey, I need to get furnace oil or groceries. Best was in his early 20s, just married and with a newborn baby at home. 
certainly blessed to not be in that position anymore. But unfortunately, there's still a lot of people across our province that are facing that challenge, you know, every day. And sometimes what can happen is you're trapped in a cycle where you have these high heating or energy costs all winter long. And you know, if I could just do this one project on my home or just have this one system installed, I'd be able to really save. But by the time the summer comes around, you're just preparing for those high costs again and recovering from what you paid for uh, in the winter. So, so what we're trying to do is break that cycle and allow someone to have a break there for that, that year that helps them then start saving and kind of exit energy poverty. So Reg went through an energy evaluation. We made a number of recommendations. We were able to incorporate uh, some of those recommendations and they were able to be completed at his home. I could use some more insulation in the crawl space. Well, Matt and I discussed that. I could use some insulation in the crawl space here, but some of the windows on the south side are a little bit drafty. I'll have to work on that over the next few years or whatever. But um, I looked at the numbers, and it's a worthwhile investment. It can save you money if you do this. You're helping the environment, and you're saving money. So it's, it makes sense. For What on Earth, I'm Kristen Nelson. It is so interesting to hear about that solution at the end, what Matt Best is doing and talking about it in terms of saving money for people on fixed incomes. Also, though, making sure that they are part of the solution and cutting their own emissions. It'll be interesting to see whether that kind of solution will be scaled up. And there may be other ones happening now that we don't know about. You're always welcome to get in touch with us and let us know about it. You are listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. We would love to hear from you about this or anything else. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca. a story of someone striving to make a difference in the battle against climate change and her surprising path to get there. For years, Sophie Gilbert has been an academic scientist. She researches how wild animals respond to big changes in the world, including climate change. But last summer, something big shifted in her. And in a Twitter thread that has since gone a bit viral, she announced she's leaving her position at the University of Idaho. That is in spite of the university's embrace of her and her work. Sophie Gilbert, hello. Hello, great to be with you. Can you take me back to last June? You're in Idaho. What happened that made you start to think and see climate change differently? Yeah, so along with all the other states and and provinces kind of on the Pacific coast, we were under what folks were calling the heat dome. And I'm sure anyone who was under that dome can remember with me, it was just absolutely shocking. Unprecedented hot temperatures in places that are usually cool and temperate and mild. 
including here in Moscow, Idaho, where June is usually just an absolutely lovely month to spend time outside with friends and family and, and out in nature. And we couldn't go outside with our family on, on a lot of days for, for very long. We actually uh, were trying to drive to see my folks in California. So right through the heat dome and just a really hard, grueling, hot trip uh, with our toddler. And it was very uh, visceral. It was very gut level. And it was very clear that this was climate change and, and that this was the kind of thing that might become more common in the future. And as a scientist who, who works a lot on how nature responds to the shifts in climate, especially wildlife responses, you know, I, I had known for a long time at an intellectual level what was happening and what would happen. But the heat dome really um, was one of those wake up moments for me along with a few other things that happened that summer that, that made me realize that it's, oh, it's, it's here now, and it's going to impact me and my family very directly. Among those few other things was what happened to your parents in California last summer. Tell me about that. My folks did have to evacuate a fire um, last August in Northern California, but their house was not burned down, and um, everyone was okay um, as opposed to a lot of other folks who, who did lose property and, you know, lots of folks who even lost their lives. Um, uh, yeah, another wake-up call on, on top of what I'd already been thinking about that really drove home that there wasn't going to be anywhere safe for any of us. At what point did that evolve into, into what you decided to do? Did you have an epiphany? I think it, over, the, over the course of the summer, I started to just really in response to these kind of slaps in the face from climate, um, I started to really do a lot more reading and thinking about, well, what are the potential solutions? Are we still waiting on tech breakthroughs or are we ready to act now? If we are ready to act, why aren't we doing things faster? And it really was surprising to me, even though I do work on climate, to realize that we do have all the tools we need. We know what to do. We know how to do it. And we're doing it but we're not doing it nearly fast enough. And I found that combination really galvanizing uh, to know that, that the solutions are at hand and, and maybe I could go help implement them and it was going to solve a problem that was real in my life and, and becoming more scary with every passing year. And we're going to talk about that some more, but I, I just want to sort of uh, pick away at, at, the, at this moment of realization. Uh, I'm wondering what it engendered in you. I, we hear so much about people feeling fearful or, or worried. What was what was what would you say was the primary thing raging through you when you were thinking about this? Yeah, I think at, like with so many people, I'm feeling anxious and worried about climate for a long time, and and more so in recent years as we all start to realize that it's it's now, it's not later. But combined with figuring out that we do know what to do, we're just not doing it fast enough, I actually started to transform those feelings and, and feel much more of a sense of anger, which conversely, I think is really a pretty empowering emotion to feel. Then the choice is just, well, what am I going to do about it? Which of these solutions am I going to go try to help implement? Because it doesn't feel like I can do nothing anymore. It doesn't feel like not changing is an option. Okay, but you changed big time. And, and you like as you've been saying, we already know what to do. Don't we still need, though, academic scientists like yourself? You know, my science really focuses on tracking and predicting how nature, especially wildlife, is responding to and will respond to climate change and land use change in the future. And so 
the reality is, while yes, that's helpful, the most helpful thing I can do for wildlife and nature is actually go fix climate change. Go fix it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> your Twitter thread got so much attention. I mean, have you been hearing from other scientists who have made the leap from university to a job that's more, for want of a better phrase, on the front lines? You know, I have heard from folks who are on the other side, but I'll be honest, I've heard much, much more from people who want to change themselves, who are still in academic roles and aren't quite sure how, but are hungry for that change and that more direct impact. And these are all academics that are thinking about that, are they? Yeah, it was it was pretty shocking, the number of people who directly reached out to me following following this announcement to say they're contemplating something similar, but aren't quite sure how to go about it. But what, I, doesn't anybody say, wait a second, you just got offered tenure. Why are you walking away? <laughs> yes, there there is absolutely surprise. There is absolutely surprise. I think they're just shocked that I that I was um, yeah, willing to give up what is a very secure and autonomous and respected role in our society. You know, being a being a tenured professor is hard to do, and we justifiably give those folks a lot of respect. You sound so completely tranquil and at ease with your decision. It's been, it's been a, a huge relief and a huge burden lifted. Now, you found a new job with, with a company, which is a forest carbon company. Tell me what you'll be doing there. Yeah, so I'll be, I'll be working for a, for a startup, of all things, um, a very quickly growing company called the Natural Capital Exchange, NCX. And... Um, they're one of a number of companies basically working on what we call um, nature-based solutions to climate change. That sounds like something we should revisit in a future episode. Um, but, I would love to. Yeah, but but for, for now, I'm wondering, what's your advice to anyone, not just university scientists, who might be feeling disempowered or overwhelmed or, or how to feel more empowered if they're feeling that rage? You know, we have a long way to go. We all have to help turn this giant super tanker of a ship in the right direction. There's a lot of things that people can do. One of the most important things we can do is just to talk about it, you know, openly and hopefully with each other and with our families and friends and social networks. There's a real reluctance to talk about it and a real almost a stigma around talking about it because for so long it has been such a tough and depressing and controversial topic. I don't think it needs to be that way anymore. I also think that. If you can go work on in a climate job, great. You know, I, I encourage everyone who can to do that. But I also think that any job can be a climate job. You know, so many companies are trying to become more sustainable and renewable in what they do and trying to develop net zero plans and goals and more circular economies within what they're doing. And so get involved with that. Wherever you work, you have the option to make change. We should all go enter the fray together. Sophie Gilbert, I have a feeling we're going to be back in touch with you before too long. But for now, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Laura. I really appreciate being on the show and um, all of your thoughtful questions. Thanks so much. So I think one of the real, really good takeaways from my chat with Sophie Gilbert is this idea that, that it doesn't have to be something at that lofty level that she's at, that anybody in any level of society can look for a way to make a difference and get out there and just do it. Uh, I so appreciated talking to her and hearing what she's decided to do.
That conversation with Sophie Gilbert happened back in April, and we plan to check back with her later this year to find out how her new job is going. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Some of you might remember this. Diplomats from around the world have reached a historic agreement to save the Earth's ozone layer. That's the natural filter high above the Earth that screens out dangerous radiation from the sun. Representatives from more than 40 countries meeting in Montreal worked out a tentative deal yesterday to reduce the chemicals that destroy the ozone shield. In 1987, Canada was one of the countries that signed on to the Montreal Protocol. It was aimed at a family of chemicals found in things like air conditioners, refrigerators, even styrofoam, and it was depleting the ozone layer. So we're digging into the archives to bring you a story about how the world banded together to solve an international environmental issue, something that's obviously relevant for today. And we want to hear from you. Do you remember learning about those chemicals? They were called CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons. They were once found in deodorant and hairsprays and in the takeout containers for your McDonald's hamburgers. Did you ditch the hairspray or boycott your favorite burgers? Email us with your story, earth at cbc.ca, and we just might call on you for an upcoming episode. You're listening to an encore presentation of What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. Everyone was like, you're going to quit to go work with farmers? And I said, <laughs> yeah, because it's going to be great. They need help. And they're like, have you met a farmer? Like, they're kind of, you know, sort of a standoffish bunch. And I said, like, this is going to work. I know it's going to work. That's Deborah Van Berkel, psychotherapist and farmer. We'll hear more about exactly what works in a few minutes. But first, we're starting with farmers in British Columbia. They're coping with the additional stress, even trauma, that climate change disasters have wreaked on them and their livelihoods. What on Earth associate producer Rachel Sanders is here now with their stories. And just a warning, this conversation does touch on suicide. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Laura. Let's start out with this. Who did you talk to? I talked to a few people. Have a listen. My name's Julia Smith. I farm and ranch in uh, the beautiful Nicola Valley here in BC. Hi, my name is Aveta Dillam and I live in Abbotsford and uh, I'm uh, doing uh, like uh, blueberry farming and uh, saffron farming. My name is Nicole Coyman, and I live in the Fraser Valley on a poultry farm with my husband. We have anywhere between 80,000 to 100,000 chickens. So as you heard, Laura, they're all in BC, farmers, ranchers in the Fraser and Nicola Valleys. And for all of them, 2021 was rough. Here's Julia Smith. It has been a heck of a year. Yeah, it started in June with the heat dome just unbelievable heat. And at the same time, the Lytton fire had started up. And so we were actually having to evacuate cattle off the range because they were kind of in harm's way. Holy smokes, that fire came through like a tornado. So it was a hard summer for Julia, but that wasn't the end of it. And just starting to recover from that 
getting the cows down from the range that they'd been moved to within days, really, of getting the last ones down when the flood hit on November 15th, three months to the day that the fire hit. You know, in all of that coverage and and living through the events of of the flooding, I had no idea that it was a terrible anniversary for some people like Julia Smith exactly three months after. And then there's the farmers who are also being really badly hit in the Fraser Valley. Yeah, that's right. Avatar Dillon is in Abbotsford. November's flooding came after he'd invested hundreds of thousands of dollars to plant what would have been BC's first crop of saffron. Everything I lose, you know, is the house and my saffron crop, all I lose, and blueberry, almost 90% of my crops, all gone, everything. You heard him mention losing 90% of his blueberries in the flood. Well, back in July, he lost half of his blueberry crop during the heat dome. Man, it's just like getting hit from all sides. That's right, yeah. Nicole Coyman and her husband run a poultry farm. You heard her earlier talking about her 100,000 chickens. She told me they had to mist their chicks with water to keep them cool during the heat dome. That's the first time they'd ever had to do that. And then when the atmospheric river rolled in in November, she and her husband were told they should evacuate because of the flood risk. Well, they didn't care about the house or their tractors. There was only one thing they worried about. The fact that they wanted us to just leave our animals with no food and no water, no way to check on them, not knowing if we would be allowed back. That's horrible. That's like you're, you're chaining them up to die. And I got really, really upset. And my husband said, no way, not a chance. They can come and arrest us and drag us out of here if they have to. We are not leaving this farm. So we didn't leave. We stayed. Well, you can hear the emotion in her voice. What happened? Nicole and her husband had a lot of help from their community. Friends, neighbors, strangers came by with trucks full of sandbags and water for the animals. But Nicole said those few days were intensely stressful. And Avtar Dillon said the same thing. He told me the challenges of the past year have taken a toll on his mental health. Every farming, you know, is uh, suffering from the mental health. And me too. I can't explain, you know, how bad they are affecting us, like mental health, anxiety. Sometimes, you know, somebody calling me and I can't answer because I have anxiety or, you know, I am emotional, you know, I can't act with them. Then uh, I'm starting crying, you know, I can't stop my feelings. Oh, anxiety, crying. These these are farmers who are supposed to be strong and stoic. Yeah, it's been heartbreaking, really, to hear from people who lost so much in those floods. Julia Smith said farmers in the Nicola Valley were also badly hit. Some of her friends and neighbors lost hectares and hectares of land equipment, fencing, irrigation systems, animals. Julia was out in the middle of the night during the worst of the flooding, helping move animals and people evacuated from their homes. And Julia said she's got a lot of energy for dealing with crisis. But by the end of the year, she felt as though she'd hit a wall. I just really started to burn out pretty hard. Um, You know, you feel guilty because you, you didn't lose as much as some people. But you just want to crawl in back into bed and pull the covers over your head, but you can't because there's so many terrible things going on and, and you want to help. And, and it just, it adds up. Okay, that's the key word there, isn't it? It's help. What kind of help is available for farmers like Julia in BC? 
Let's talk financial help first, because that's a source of so much stress for farmers. The BC government promised early on that financial help was on the way, but Nicole Coyman said trying to access that support can often add to the stress as well. What's super frustrating is the paperwork and the process just to try and get a little bit of funding, only to you know, not find anyone to talk to or being denied, that is super stressful. And having that be in the way of us trying to get back to our lives is not helping at all. So I contacted the BC government. The Ministry of Agriculture and Food says it's working with farmers individually and processing claims on a regular basis. And Emergency Management BC says it has added staff and has been working evenings and weekends to deal with the applications. But Julia Smith told me a lot of farmers are still waiting for support to arrive and that's been very stressful. And Nicole agrees. It's just an extra stress on what we've already went through. And that is what's going to push people over the edge. That is when people are going to hurt themselves, maybe not intentionally, but maybe thinking that that's the only way that it'll fix their pain. Okay, those are scary words. And that points to another kind of support. What, what about mental health support for farmers who are affected by the flooding? Well, there are some free resources available. One example, the nonprofit industry organization AgSafe BC partnered with counselors and mental health organizations to offer different kinds of mental health supports. That includes some free counseling for BC farmers. That sounds promising. It does, but Julia said people she knows haven't been accessing those supports. Nobody was doing it. You just you just can't. It it's the bottom of the list when you're dealing with literally life and death situations with your livestock and looking at losing your house, for example, you you can't stop and check in with yourself. What if you're not okay? What if you fall apart? Who's going to shore up the bank? You, You can't really look it in the eye because it might overwhelm you. And falling apart's not an option. Not an option, but if you don't pay attention to it, then You may just fall apart anyway if we've learned anything about mental health, Rachel. That's true, but on top of everything else, there's still stigma around the subject of mental health. There are a lot of Indo-Canadian blueberry farmers in the Fraser Valley, like Avtar, and I asked him whether it's hard for people in his community to talk about mental health. Yeah, some people, you know, they not agree they have a mental health problem, but I know as many farmers, they're already suffering with their mental health. Nobody want to say, no, I have a problem, but I want to let you know, we really need help to someone they can uh, counseling us. I am very, very stressful and anxiety. So Avtar said there's some mental health support from Punjabi-speaking counsellors in Abbotsford. And remember the industry organization AgSafe BC? It's been reaching out to the South Asian community to offer help as well. But Laura, climate change aside, farmers are already at high risk for mental health problems like anxiety and depression. We'll hear more about that from our next guest and about how climate change is making the problem worse. Rachel, you've presented a really powerful portrait of what these farmers are going through. I thank you for this. Thank you, Laura. We've heard just how badly climate change disasters are hitting farmers in B.C., but it isn't always as dramatic as wildfires or floods. The slow burn of a warming planet has been taking its toll on farmers across the country for a few years now. 
and researchers say it's not always as obvious as you think. My name is Brianna Hagen, and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Guelph in the Department of Population Medicine, and I research farmer mental health. Hagen has interviewed farmers about agricultural crises, stress, and climate change. Even something as seemingly simple as, okay, we have to change the crop that we rotate through can be a huge, huge undertaking. On top of the climate crisis happening and farmers having to think about, okay, how do I use this land that I've used for generations and change how I farm to adapt to the way that the land is changing? They're also being additionally scrutinized by, you know, some of the public about the contributions that they are perceived to be making to the climate crisis. Now, we've already talked about this picture, the stereotypical farmer, hardworking, self-sufficient. Hagen says some may hesitate to seek help. People don't want to be seen as weak. And then there's living in a small town. Hagen says the farmers she talked to told her the stigma around mental illness makes them want to hide the fact that they actually need support from others in the community. They didn't want their car or truck recognized at a clinic because they thought, you know, it's across the street from my bank. And then what happens if my loan officer sees my truck there? What if they can't grant me a loan next time because my mental health is bad? So there were these cascading impacts that hadn't happened, but that were perceived to be problems in the future if they were to seek help. So Hagen says finding support falls to the bottom of a long list of things that need to get done. And even for those farmers who have made it a priority, She says the experience sometimes creates even more problems. There was also an issue of people uh, who went to seek help and then they felt like the healthcare provider or mental health care provider didn't have any kind of knowledge around what it meant to farm day to day and what the particular stresses might be and how they could seek help for that. Uh, Didn't work within that scope and so they didn't go back. It's a reality, Hagen says, is all too common, and one she didn't want to just watch unfold from the sidelines. You created a sort of an emergency guide. Um, You're trying to help agricultural communities. You've got uh, the guide to help agricultural groups, communities, and governments support farmers during a crisis. So, So what are the key takeaways from that? Well, I think one of those key takeaways is what we were just talking about. Having something that's grounded in agriculture is the essential first step in any type of programming or response that you have to an emergency. If you don't have the farming context down, you're not going to be able to help effectively. And then beyond that, making sure that these things are brought in, not just when a crisis happens, but we plan for these crises so that we can protect mental health before it's challenged, Uh, you know, increasing resilience, increasing mental health literacy so that when a crisis hits, we're ready and able to help people more effectively and quicker. And this, you're working on educating agricultural communities in Ontario about mental health with something called In the Know. Tell me about that program. Yeah, so In the Know is a farm-specific mental health literacy training that we uh, design based on our research and uh, based on research that's been done in other regions. And it is a program that's actually now accessible across the country. Uh, not just in Ontario. And it has been shown to significantly improve uh, farmers and people who work with farmers' general mental health knowledge, their comfortability in talking about mental health uh, about themselves or others, and recognizing signs and symptoms of a mental health struggle, 
along with increasing their confidence in being able to help in a scenario where someone might be experiencing a struggle. So guiding them to uh, or bridging the gap between them and appropriate mental health care services. Hagen says that literacy and ensuring services are free are crucial next steps as temperatures continue to rise and climate disasters increase in frequency. Thanks to Brianna Hagen and her colleagues, there's been a growing awareness of farmer mental health in recent years, and new programs have been springing up across the country. Deborah Van Berkel is the founder of the Farmer Wellness Program in Ontario. She's a psychotherapist, and her family runs a dairy farm in Odessa. And just a note once again, this conversation touches on suicide. Deborah, hello. Hi. What made you want to help farmers with their mental health? Well... There's a story that comes behind it. One night, my husband was at a milk meeting and he came home that night and we were doing chores. And he was talking about how they were talking about mental health at the meeting, which, of course, piqued my interest because that was not something that was commonly discussed. And what had happened was a farmer up in Western Ontario um, was struggling and uh, contemplating suicide. And was reaching out for services and it somehow made its way all the way here. And they spoke to one of the farmers in our area and he brought it up at the meeting and I couldn't get through chores quick enough at that moment. And I got home and started calling people and started making all these plans. And and that's when it kind of got created that I was going to focus on, on agriculture because there just were no services that were available to farmers and their families. Were you able to help that farmer in particular? No, I was not able to help that farmer. Um, I didn't find out who that was, but I did talk to the person who spoke with him and he did receive help. They ended up, I know that they ended up getting him to um, the emergency room. I do know that. Good to know. So you are a psychotherapist. You have a background in agriculture. What difference does it make, does that make, when you're talking to farmers about mental health challenges? Well, the reason why I wanted to kind of do this was because I kept hearing from all of our farmer friends and just people in the industry that when they did go to talk to somebody or they wanted to talk to somebody, it was, who's going to understand my lifestyle? How are they going to understand? And this is why we need to have therapists to have that ag background so that these barriers are removed and they can come in and start talking about the problems that they're having and be able to have that person relate back to them without having to explain all the details or nitty gritty about farming itself. And what are the tools you give them? I mean, I'm I'm sure that even just listening and letting them talk is helpful, but what tools do you give them to, to build their resilience? Well, we talk about what tools work for them. And yes, talking is a big thing because, it, again, it's that fear of not knowing what's going to happen. Am I going to lose my farm? Am I not going to lose my farm? Are my kids going to be able to take it over? Right? That anxiety starts to creep in because that of, of that uncertainty. So my biggest question is always, you know, 
what have you done in the past? Like, what are some things that you can work on, you know, that have worked for you? And so we just kind of look at it that way. So if they have a support system, you know, are we able to access it? What does your support system look like? Who's involved in it, right? Because there's always a network of people when it comes to farming. It's interesting you mentioned the, the, the importance of, of support because um, peer support, I, I understand, is really important. And there's an organization called the Stigma Free Society that started up a program this year to offer that kind of peer support training for people in rural and agricultural communities. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what you think of that. I, I'm a big fan of peer support because it can be beneficial to the majority of people. But what a peer support group is, is a group of people that are like-minded, that have similar issues, things with going on, and they're talking about it. And the only difference is we're labeling it as such. If I'm ever at a meeting or doing, you know, a webinar or a workshop or anything, I always tell this story. And it was a friend of mine who's a farmer, and I just started the business, and he asked me to help out like asking me like some funny questions or whatever and then he said okay so a bunch of us are going to go for lunch it was raining and nobody had been able to plant which was causing all sorts of delay which was causing panic and anxiety amongst everybody and so they wanted to go for lunch and so we talked about meeting at this one place and he rhymed off everybody that was going yep we're gonna have eats and drinks and we're gonna talk about mother nature and how much we hate her yep i'm like okay so you just developed a pure support group and I'm totally in. <laughs> He's like, what? I'm like, that's a peer support group. And he so of course colorful language came my way. And I'm like, no, it's the exact same thing, except we label it differently. It's no different than when people come to the porch and you have drinks or when you have the barn meetings or when you have crop meetings or when you're just getting together. When you meet up at the grocery store, when you meet up at the coffee shop, those are all various types of peer supports. We just don't call them that. That's really interesting. And obviously, because it doesn't have that label, it's more accessible to to people like farmers who are always thought of as so stoic and they can handle anything. They're fixers, right? So if something's broken, they fix it. It's always been the way. That's how they were taught. And so when something's kind of going on inside of them or something is unfixable because it's out of their control, a lot of times that's where it causes that internal confusion. Like, what do I do? And how do I handle this? So your program is the Farmer Wellness Program. It started in in, in 2019. So tell me how that works. So we launched it in February of 2019 for farmers. And they were able to connect with me at the time. I was the only person. And it was at times that were flexible. So it wasn't, you know, the typical nine to five, eight to four. It was whenever. So They were able, you know, to get first thing in the morning or after chores in the evenings, anytime during the week on the weekends. Um, Also, I was able to meet at different locations. So whether it was in an office or if they wanted to meet on the farm because they weren't able to leave, which is another barrier for farmers. And we were also fortunate enough to raise money that they were able to access four sessions at no cost. And aside from from your program in Ontario, what kind of mental health support is available for farmers across Canada? Well, the Farmer Wellness Program was actually modeled off of the Farmer Assistance Program, which is in Prince Edward Island. And then most recently, Manitoba just released their Manitoba Farmer Wellness Program. And the most recent as well is the ministry so the ontario 
Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs partnered with the Canadian Mental Health Association and the Ontario Federation of Agriculture and created the Farmer Wellness Initiative, which is modeled after the Farmer Wellness Program. Okay, sounds like there's some holes there, though. So what's (laughs) needed to make sure that all farmers in all parts of the country have access to mental health care? We need to expand all of these types of farmer wellness program across Canada or similar services so that all farmers can access services that are tailored for themselves and their families. You've been a counselor for a very long time. How do you know when the work that you've been doing makes a difference to farmers? Oh, that is something that is so near and dear to my heart. So I used to work for addictions and mental health services which was um, a ministry job. And I quit that to open my own business to work with farmers. And everyone was like, you're going to quit to go work with farmers. And I said, (laughs) yeah, because it's going to be great. They need help. And they're like, have you met a farmer? Like, they're kind of, you know, sort of a standoffish bunch. And I said, like, this is going to work. I know it's going to work. And since then, I have had so many instances where you you know it's working so for instance i had a client who for probably like three or four sessions wouldn't even sign consent with me which is a detail that you have to do at the very beginning and because of that trust factor and he just it took him so long to build that trust and he had um attempted suicide and so he never really talked about it and it took you know a lot of rapport building and discussions and and really working with him to work through what was going on and one day we were sitting outside and the phone rang and it was his brother and he answered it and he was like oh i can't talk right now he's like i'm just talking to deb you know deb my therapist yeah we're like really in the middle of things so i just can't talk to you right now and i remember thinking like wow yeah wow (laughs) yeah and just the feedback especially from the older generations who come up and say thank you. I like, we don't know how to talk about this. I've had, I've had more people than I can count say that. Like, I don't know how to talk about this. I'm so glad that services like this, that people like you exist so that, you know, my son and their kids, you know, have something like this because we were never taught that. Well, Deborah Van Brickle, thank you very much for, for talking to us. It sounds like you're really making a difference. I hope so. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and spreading the word. Well, I just thought I should note that um, with the discussions we are having, whether you're a farmer or not, if you or someone that you know is in crisis, you can call Crisis Services Canada at 1-833-456-4566. That's 1-833-456-4566. And you can also text for support at 45645. And that's all from us this week. We love hearing from you about anything you hear on the show. You can email us earth at cbc.ca. And if you missed any of today's show, head over to CBC Listen. This week's program was produced by Kristen Nelson, Molly Siegel, Rachel Sanders, and Zoe Yunker. The What on Earth team includes Danielle Piper. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.